Good morning. It's really great to be back here again today. Uh, what a blessing our church family is um, to me and my family. We are really, really, really thankful. Um, at this time, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're making our way through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, Colossians chapter 2. And the text that we're going to be looking at this morning will be verses 9 to 15. But just to remind everyone the context that we're in, I want to begin reading in verse 8. So if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And um, I'll begin by first reading our text one through, and then afterwards we can go through each of these verses. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, here now are the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In this text, the Apostle Paul sets forth some of the most awe-inspiring verses in the entire Bible on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul presents the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ alone. Here is the true Christ. This is not the Christ of the false teachers. This is not the Christ of the false churches. This is not the Christ of unbelieving pastors and theologians and cult leaders this is not the Christ of the Latter-day Saints this is not the Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses this is the true Christ and as Paul writes to the Colossians he must address the false teachers who are trying to deceive them and lure them away with these deceptions away from the true Christ and in order to do that he must set before them the reality of who Jesus Christ is truly is these false teachers who were coming into the church and they were rubbing shoulders with its members and were attempting to pervert the purity of the gospel of jesus christ 
They were teaching that Christ was a created being and that he was just one of many spirit emanations that had come from God. Um, and so Paul must define and defend the truth of who Jesus Christ truly is and whether it was philosophy or angel worship or um, legalism, Jewish legalism. Um, there was just all of these um, different, uh, I call them um, muddy um, uh, dams that were breaking and flowing into one polluted river. It, it was just an absolute mess of what was going on in the first century. And so, again, Paul must define and defend the truth of who the true Jesus Christ is. And there's a real sense in which our own eternity also hinges on the truth of these verses. You got to get this part right. If you have the wrong Christ, you're missing out. A different Christ cannot save you. In fact, faith in a false Christ will damn you to hell. And so as we walk through these passages this morning, I have four headings that I started with. It's going to be a two-part sermon. We're going to get through two of them today. But let me set these out before you. And so the first one I want to share with you this morning is the complete sufficiency there is in Jesus Christ. The complete sufficiency of Christ. And these are on the back of your bulletin notes. And let's uh, start in verse 9, which is where we let up, left off last week. And verse 9 is perhaps the most definite statement of Christ's deity in all the epistles. Um, and is really the rock upon which all attempts to um, disprove Christ's deity are shattered right here. Paul takes care of it. Notice how Paul describes Christ in verse 9. This is really incredible. Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, the in him is obviously referring to Jesus Christ. Christ is the um, last word mentioned in verse 8 where Paul said, according to Christ. So it's obvious who the him is. It's Christ. Um, and really, Christ has been the whole discussion of this whole book. Um, just for this chapter alone, uh, scan up and notice the end of verse 2 of chapter 2, talking about God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Beginning in verse 3, in whom, which is speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The end of verse 5, the stability of your faith in Christ. Start of verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So there's no mystery about who in him is in verse 9. It is Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes this, this extraordinary statement. He says, for in him all the fullness, this is, this is a double, all the fullness of deity dwells. We'll stop right there for a moment. Now, this is really just... Um, an expansion of what Paul was speaking about back in chapter 1 in verse 19. There, you can turn there and look. He says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And so here in chapter 2 in verse 9, Paul just expands on that to make it even more clear that Jesus Christ is God. Here he says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells 
and then he adds in bodily form. And beloved, this is really as straightforward as you can get, right? No <laughs> hoops to jump through here. Deity, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, in him physically. Uh, deity here refers to Christ's divine nature. And so Paul is insisting that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Not part of it, all of it. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is more than merely a God. Right? Um, and, or even, you know, um, we might even say uh, of certain men and women that they are um, godly. Uh, made in the image of God. They're, this is a godly man. But here, he's saying way more than that of Jesus Christ. He's saying, just as he possesses the divine attributes of, not that he, he possesses just some of the divine attributes of God, no, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. All of it. That is, all of the divine attributes that belong to God the Father and belong to God the Spirit, also belong to God the Son. This deity is um, undiluted, um, undiminished, and undivided. Christ possesses all the holiness of, of God the Father and God the Spirit. He possesses all the righteousness and, and all the sovereignty and omnipotence and all of the wisdom and all of his grace and all of the truth and all mercy and all love and all compassion as do the other two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity equally share the same essence and all the same um, divine attributes. Three persons, one God. And the rest of the Bible clearly affirms the full deity of Jesus Christ. How about John chapter 1? We spent a couple years in John's gospel. John chapter 1 in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Pretty clear. How about jump down to uh, John chapter 1, verse um, 14, where John, who spent three plus years with Christ, said, And the Word, which is Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. The same glory that came from the Father, Christ came in. He was full of it of grace and true. How about something even clearer? Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says it plainly. Here he writes, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How about Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3? The writer to the Hebrews makes this staggering statement about Christ. He calls them the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Did you hear that? Christ is the exact imprint or literally the exact representation of his nature. This is what Jesus himself said in John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. The exact 
seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1.8. Uh, uh, I spent some time on this last night. <laughs> Another stunning verse. Picture for a moment. God the Father and God the Son sitting in heaven. And then notice what verse 8 says. We're, we're, we're brought into this conversation. But to the Son, he, God the Father, says, looks at the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. <laughs> God the Father calls God the Son, God. Which really brings to mind Psalm 110.1, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord is God the Father. My Lord is God the Son. So again, this is God the Father declaring that God the Son is Lord, which is a synonymous term for deity. And so Paul begins in verse 9 by really climbing to the, the highest peak. He goes to the, the most highest level of, of Mount Everest. And he plants the flag of deity, the full deity of Jesus Christ. For in Christ, Paul writes, all the fullness of deity dwells. Now, please notice this phrase Paul adds there at the end. In bodily form. And he does this to confront the false teacher. Once you know what the false teachers are teaching, it really helps... Um, exegete the entire passage when you don't know you're missing entire ways that Paul and John are confronting the false teachers of their time and he does this to confront the false teaching that Jesus Christ was never really fully man it went both ways he wasn't fully God and he wasn't fully man either remember the Gnostics had the whole idea that he was this spirit being and he'd be walking on the shores of Galilee and there'd be no footprints you know, just stuff that they made up like that in their writings. But Paul here explicitly and exclusively affirms that Jesus Christ is the physical presence of God himself in bodily form. Here we see eternal deity that was joined to sinless humanity, making Jesus Christ the, the God-man. The God-man. As he is both fully God and, and fully man. And the word dwells here means to inhabit. Or to be established in permanently. <laughs> and you see this really in your English translation. It's in the present tense, dwells. Dwells. It's not will dwell or once dwelled. But dwells. Continually, permanently, eternally. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus through the incarnation, now and forever, dwells in bodily form. And that means that right now Jesus is in a resurrected, glorified body and is physically seated at the right hand of the Father on majesty on high in heaven, in bodily form, glorified at that. While here on earth, he had a human body. Just to list some of these descriptions for you in case you're, you're still not tracking. Galatians 4, he was born of a woman. He was subject to, to growth, Luke 2. 1 John 1 says... That we heard what we had seen with our eyes, what we touched with our hands, the word of life was manifested. He hungered, Matthew 4. He thirsted, John 19. He grew tired, John 4. He wept, we saw yesterday, John 11. He slept, 
Matthew 8, he died, John 19. And this is why Jesus had to add to his um, deity humanity. He didn't let go of the deity to, to take on humanity. The correct way to, to teach this is he kept deity, he humbled himself, certainly. Didn't, didn't take equality with God as the thing to be grasped. And so when he came, when he was one years old, he was one years old. He really was one years old. He's not sitting there with a, a mind of a 30-year-old or the, with the mind of God. He was, he was really, he truly humbled himself. But he didn't lose his deity ever, and he added humanity. So it's not correct even to say that he was 50% God and 50% man. That's also incorrect. He's 100% God, 100% man. So full deity added to himself humanity. That's the, the correct way that the scriptures speak of Christ. And when you start changing those, you're starting to change the DNA of who Christ is depicted in the incarnation. And the reason why this is important is, well, for number one, God cannot die, <laughs> right? And if he had only remained full deity, he could have never paid the price for our sins. The wages of sin is what? Death. Well, then we have a problem. God can't die. <laughs> only one in bodily form could be crucified and die upon that cross. And only if he's God does he have the authority to forgive sins. And to pay that debt. And so that's why these two truths are, are critically important. You change this, you got a different Christ, and you are not saved. He had a human blood, John 19, a human soul, Matthew 26, a human will, Luke 22. He was as human as you and I are human, yet without a sin nature because of the miraculous conception. That was the incarnation. And so this is fundamentally, critically important that we know who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. And as 1 Timothy 3.16 says, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh. Well, Paul continues to build out this argument of the complete sufficiency that there is in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. Let's just stop right there. This is really another important statement. Have been made complete is all one word in the Greek. It's the word pleiro, and it means um, to fulfill or to make full. And the idea here is, of it is there's no room for anything else to be filled to the top so that nothing is lacking and nothing is needed to be added. Full, complete. And what Paul is saying is when you receive Christ by faith, you were made complete. Complete. Because Christ is who he is, you, beloved, have been made complete. At that moment that you received Christ that we read last week, all that you need is Christ. And by the way, did you notice this is also one of these perfect tenses again? And in him you have been made complete. So this indicates a past action with the continuing result into the future. At the moment of your conversion, 
you were made totally complete in Christ. There's nothing more that needs to be added along the way. You didn't need to add anything to make yourself complete in Christ. You just showed up empty-handed. And Christ was added to your empty life. And in him, you have now been made complete. Let that just wash right over you. In Christ, you have been made complete. Why would be we'd be looking for anything else. The fullness of Christ has been given to you, the believer. This is why you don't need the second blessing. You got it all the moment you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, for in him you have been made complete. You have been filled to capacity, to the max, to the brim in Christ. Christ is everything, and you have Christ, so you have everything that you need. Why would you go to man-made philosophy? In every situation of life, his divine power has granted to, to us everything you need. Remember our study pertaining to life and godliness, Second Peter? Whatever the challenge, whatever the obstacle, whatever the difficulty... You have it all in Christ. This is the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You are complete in Christ. You have access to all joy, all power, all peace, all patience, all endurance, all steadfastness. You have access to everything that you need to live your Christian life. It's not out there someplace in the, in the mystical no, he dwells right there inside of you. As we continue in verse 10, it really just keeps getting better. As Christ possesses all the fullness of deity, Paul says he is the head over all rule and authority. Again, Christ was not one of these um, lesser spirits um, emanating from God, as the false teachers maintained. Rather, he is God himself and thus the head over all rule and authority. And this speaks to the spiritual realm or the um, angelic realm more specifically. As the head over all rule, Christ is the sovereign one. Everyone and everything is subordinate to Christ. There is only one at the head and it is Christ. In fact, after his work of the cross was finished and following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 and pronounced this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And right now, where is Christ? He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father until he has put all his enemies under his feet and so Paul says he is the head over all rule and authority and again Paul introduced this to us back in chapter 1 verse 16 in that great section of verses 5 to 20 but in chapter 1 verse 16 he said for by him all things were created that is by Christ 
All things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and look at this, importantly, and for him. Everything. Seen, unseen, dominions, rulers, authorities, and these, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, those are four words um, designating the, the hierarchy of the, um, the invisible um, spiritual realm, um, specifically the um, angelic realm, both the elect angels and non-elect angels, or in other words, angels and demons. But back to chapter 2 and verse 10, I want you to notice again what Paul says, because this is all going to come together here. He writes, Christ is the head over all rule authority. Question, why is Paul stressing this here? Answer, because the false teachers who have come into the church of Colossae have this bizarre preoccupation with angels and angel worship, and they're trying to seduce the believers into angel worship and having this fixation on angels. In fact, the same issue is brought up in, in the book of Hebrews. And if you'll just let your eye go down to verse 18 of chapter 2, you'll see why I'm saying this. Notice the warning Paul gives in verse 18. He says, let no one, and that this is referring to the false teachers, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, and notice, the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, why would Paul say all of that? Where on earth is all this coming from? All of a sudden, we're talking about the worship of angels and the people having these supposed visions of a, a fleshly mind. What's the relevance of all this? Well, it's highly relevant in this church because these Gnostic teachers, or the Colossian heresy, were pulling the believer's focus off of Christ and onto the spectacular or the sensational and the mystical. And so imagine this. Uh, they come into the church and these new teachers show up and they're talking about all their visions and experiences of visiting with the angels. And, oh, you haven't visited with the angels before? We do it all the time. And they got the dreams going on. You hear people that's constantly talking about dreams, my dreams, and this... These are the things that start going, and people are like, well, I didn't have a dream. My dream is just kind of pretty boring, or I don't even remember my dreams. And this whole mystical thing is coming into the church, and it's this smell that's starting to go through, and people are like, ooh, I want what they've got. They, their spirit, they must be more spiritual. And this sounds exciting. This is way more interesting than our study of the person and work of Jesus Christ that Nick is taking us through. And so that's why Paul says, this is insane. You're taking your eye off of the prize. You need to stay focused on Christ. What are you doing? Christ is the one who created all the angels. 
Why on earth would you be worshiping the angels when the angels are worshiping Christ? And that was the danger here in the church of Colossae and elsewhere. And so that's why Paul has to stress here in verse 10, in Christ, you have been made complete. Complete. Christ is head over all the angels. And you're being caught up in all that stuff? Get your eyes back on Christ. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. Christ alone is all that you need. He's sovereign over all of it. All things have been created through him and for Christ. So keep your eyes on him. Everyone and everything else is way below him. Keep your eyes on Christ. That leads us to our final point today. This is going to be a two-part message. Point number two, and in the rest of really the verses as we we go over the next couple weeks, Paul is going to tell us what the definition of this completeness is. And in verses 11 through 12, we see in Christ a complete salvation. A complete salvation. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Let's just stop right there. Now we are um, New Testament (laughs) Gentiles. So the practice of the old covenant sign of circumcision may um, not be quite as familiar to all of us here. Um, but it was required under the Mosaic law um, that on the eighth day a, a baby boy would be circumcised. It was an outward sign of the covenant um, made between God and Israel. Um, if you want to read a little bit about it, you can go to Genesis chapter 17. There's a couple of verses starting in verse 10 there. And essentially it was a sign that signified the nation of Israel had been um, cut off or set apart unto God. Okay, and like most, almost all, most Old Testament signs, they pointed ahead to a New Testament spiritual reality, a spiritual truth, that today we need a circumcised heart. We need our heart of stone cut out and a heart of flesh put back in. The word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, must be wielded by the Holy Spirit and must pierce your heart and cause a, a heart wound of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it is in this spiritual cutting away, Acts 2, what, are they, what, what happens to 3,000 Jews? They're pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, cut to the quick. And this is God cutting away that God can implant into you a new heart with new desires. But again, why is Paul bringing this up now, you ask? Again, in response to false teachers who had come in, not only were they teaching philosophy, Eastern mysticism, angel worship of this great heretical soup, also combined elements of the law. Jewish legalism. I mean, this was a real doozy. 
And they would be saying things like, well, in order for you to be saved, you know, essentially you need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised, men. I mean, this stuff was really ridiculous. Never mind the fact I'm sure most men split after hearing that. You want to do what? Honey, you want to join the church? Go see the pastor. And so Paul has to address this. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but this is what was going on. I mean, why are we talking about circumcision here? (laughs) And so Paul says to them, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, either you've got a bad doctor and he's holding the blade and then his knife, or Paul's talking about something else here, a spiritual reality. In other words, you've already been circumcised. You've had the true circumcision of the heart, a circumcision made without hands in the removal, verse 11, of the body of the flesh, notice, by the circumcision of Christ, the great physician. In the physical circumcision, the tip of the flesh is cut off. In the spiritual circumcision of Christ, you have also had a cutting that takes place that removes part of your flesh, your sinful flesh, your your sin nature. Do you see the double illusion that's going on here with the words? So what Paul is saying is when you were spiritually circumcised in the new birth, there was a removal of, Paul calls it, the body of the flesh. And that's what he's referring to here, is our sinful nature that we still wrestle with, but is no longer the dominant, driving power in our lives as it once was after the new birth. There was a time in our old life that we did whatever we wanted whenever we wanted our sinful flesh, and that's what drove in the front seat. Our sinful flesh was behind the steering wheel and he was directing the bus to wherever we wanted to go. And when we were spiritually circumcised, that sinful flesh was cut out and thrown in the back seat and now Christ jumps in the front seat and he's steering the bus. We still have a sinful flesh. Paul says in Romans 7, 19 to 20, for the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice a very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Oh, what a wretched man. I mean, this is a real struggle. Read chapter 7 for Paul in Romans. But, and we know this. We, we know the very real struggle of the flesh. However, if you've been made a new creation born from above... It is no longer the dominant force that it once was in your life. And so the sin nature in you has been cut out from its its ruling power. Christ now is ruling you. Christ is now the power that rules. The power of sin has been subdued. We've got a new master. No longer we slaves to sin. uh, Christ bought us out of the slave market. And it no longer has the power it once did in our lives. <clears throat> Romans 2, 28 through 29 is a, a key text on this. I wish I had time to work through each of the 
sections of it, but let me just read this to you. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And notice, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Okay, you hear that? You see, Paul was writing to people who were physically circumcised but not spiritually. And so the true circumcision is of the heart. And uh, Paul gave the same warning, um, really powerful warning, Philippians chapter 3, 2 through 3, he says, Be aware of the dogs. Be aware of the evil workers. Be aware of the false circumcision. And who are these guys? The false circumcision is these dogs. These guys were called Judaizers. And it's the same deal. They were legalists, Jewish legalists. And Paul says, be aware of the false circumcision. They're not circumcised. For we, we are the true circumcision, he says, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have had the true circumcision. And your heart has been cut deeply and brought to the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, and the Lord has opened up your, in essence, your chest cavity. And God took out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and God put his spirit in you. And it's a new heart that now loves God and loves Christ and loves the people of God and loves his word. And this is what Paul's talking about here. And so, as we close today, I just ask you simply, has Christ done this in your own life? Has your heart been circumcised by the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the new birth, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ? That's the question I want you to seriously meditate on and think about as this is the only way that we can be washed and made clean by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so ask the Lord, convict me of my sin. Convict me of what true righteousness is that I can't perform on my own apart from Christ. And convict me of the judgment to come. I don't know if you guys noticed with all that's going on in Israel the clock just got sped up. I mean, what was it, 1947? It went from, you know, 11.01 to a quarter of 12, and the last couple of weeks, it's 10 or 5 of, of 12. It's ticking, and things are getting sped up, and you got to know for sure, am I right with God? Is my heart right with God? Have I come to the foot of the cross, forsaken all, and come and beg for the forgiveness that is only available in Jesus Christ. And so we should be assured of this, and we should know this. And so that's what I leave you with today. Um, next week we'll pick up on this. We'll, I won't have to uh, do the work on the bulletin. We'll just run it right back for part two. If you need prayers, um, we'd be happy to pray with you. You're welcome to come forward this morning. And I want to invite you to stand as we sing the song of invitation and give praise to the King of Kings. Thank you.